This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. And welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88. And we're jumping back into the woven web of the amazing Spider-Man for the sequel to Andrew Garfield's ill-fated Spider-Man run, due to no fault of his own. This one suffered a lot from, you know, just a lot of executive decisions. It certainly was not Garfield's or I think anyone on you know, the main production team's fault for how this all goes down but they were they were told to hit certain metrics and unfortunately those metrics did not give us a a particularly good movie i would say they hit the metrics all right but with like a sledgehammer when the situation called for tweezers yeah yes so, without further ado, say we just dive straight into the plot synopsis for this one because got kind of a lot of weird things to work through. This one suffers from sequel syndrome where they tried to outdo the first film when they really didn't need to. If you're looking for a spoiler free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Yeah. So, where do we begin but in the past? <laughs> Damn these flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, so a former Oscorp scientist, Richard Parker, Peter Parker's dad, leaves a video message to explain why he's disappearing off the face of the planet. He and his wife flee aboard a private jet. But, plot twist, it's been hijacked by an assassin. The jet crashes, killing them instantly, and then we're back in the present day. Didn't we just do this? Yeah, yeah, we did. We're we're back into that that uh that phase where we forget what we did in former films. You know, we've got to do the same thing over again. But there's there's just a little bit more. These, this nugget's a little juicier, but we're not gonna see the rest of that nugget until much later. Because why why would they give us why would they give us the whole nugget right right then and there when we might want it when it might make us care? Uh, anyway. So this is two years after the events of the first Amazing Spider-Man, and Peter has continued to fight crime as our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And his first action that we see in the film is some lovely CGI of him falling through the city, where they really highlighted how thin the material of the suit is by making it flap around in the breeze. (laughs) And Uh. And he apprehends a very Russian criminal named Alexei. And Peter also grapples with the wonders of being a teenager and not knowing how he feels about his relationship with his girlfriend because he kind of made a promise to her dad that he would stay away, but he also kind of said that sometimes you can't keep promises and those are the best kind because that's a great pickup line. A-plus job, Peter Parker. Yeah, good job, Pete. Yeah, and then Gwen 
is over it. So she says, I break up with you. After that, you know, Peter's a little bit upset, but happy times. His best buddy is back in town. His best buddy, Harry Osborne. Did we really need to go back over the Osbournes? We had an entire trilogy about the Osbournes. And while Harry Osborne is a central figure, supporting character to Pete's overall story, we did all right with the first one without an Osborne? So did we really need to bring one in on the sequel? Did we? Yeah, and this movie kind of suffers from multiple villain syndrome where they could have either committed to the Green Goblin or given us Electro, but they really didn't need to do both because they're trying to cram way too much exposition into the runtime. And they gave us like 10 whole minutes of Peter Parker and and Harry catching up across New York City and hanging out and skateboarding and eating pizza. Uh, they spend about two whole seconds on Norman Osborn, who then just expires, leaving his son as the CEO of his company. And he's this angsty, angry teenager who hates his dad. So, of course, he begins a reign of terror over the company, where he goes on an immediate power trip and makes everyone in the room hate him. Yes, because uh, teenage CEOs have always worked out to everyone's best interest. And we see a little uh, moment between Spider-Man and Max, where Max drops a bunch of blueprints all over the ground and Spider-Man helps him, which makes him kind of weirdly obsessive over Spider-Man. And he was also saved, right? Yeah. So, yeah, he he picks up some some hero worship. I did not care for this uh, rendition of Max Dillon, the comb over with the bad teeth and the nerdy not even it's the the terrible nerdy look that loser look that's that is a stereotype that wasn't necessary the the glow up as it were between max dylan uh mild-mannered electrical engineer and electro was it just wasn't necessary to do you could have just made jamie fox an electrical engineer and turned him into a bad guy yeah and we get this really horrifying scene of max falling into the electric eel pit and them like swimming into his body and electrocuting him (laughs) yeah they got real creative with uh how he gains those powers which was just visually unappealing to to witness (laughs) yeah gwen is thinking about making a more permanent move in regards to her relationship with peter by moving to england to go to oxford and peter is very awkward in telling her good luck more or less uh there's awkward and there's like teenage bad romance awkward and i'm gonna let you Listeners guess which end of the spectrum we're on here. Mm-hmm. Max is very confused after awakening with his powers and wanders, just uh, just wanders casually out into Times Square where he causes a massive power outage and while Peter, as Spider-Man, tries to calm him down, the police end up escalating the situation by shooting him, which causes him to freak out. Because, you know... 
what calms down a situation? Gunfire. <laughs> y- yeah. That's calmed down every situation ever, don't you know? Mm, yes. After that lovely uh, idea, he kind of goes a little crazy and uh, starts attacking and requires Spider-Man to get a little creative. And once he's now stopped, Max gets taken to Ravencroft Institute, which is like, it's the Spider-Man version of Arkham, but but not nearly as uh, as important as Arkham is to the Batman mythos. Mm-hmm. But we're also introduced to a uh, Dr. Ashley Kafka, who in every other rendition was female, and they decided to make male for this movie. Could not even remotely guess why. Yeah, uh, they do a bunch of weird experiments on, on Max and keep him locked up in a way where he cannot escape using his electrical fields. Meanwhile, we of course need to revisit the goblin because Harry's father has expired and he told him that this disease is genetic and the madness will find him eventually. Well, the symptoms are starting to show. Naturally. Somehow he thinks that Spider-Man's blood will magically cure him, so he wants Spider-Man's blood. And, you know, you, you make it this con- he makes this crazy conjecture that because Peter has taken pictures of Spider-Man, that he knows Spider-Man, because that's how things work, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, if you're a sports photographer and you work a particular stadium, then yeah, of course you know the quarterback of the, of the 49ers or the, I don't know my sports team, so don't at me, okay? I only watch combat sports and horse racing, neither of which have teams that I need to remember, so... Um... Yeah, I, I suck at that, but yeah, he totally knows Spider-Man, and Peter tells him, like, I I took pictures of Spider-Man with a really long lens, you know, I, I don't I don't know him personally, and he's like, well, I, I need to see him, I just, I want to talk to him. Yeah, sure, you want to talk to him, but you, you want his blood. Peter doesn't really know what giving him his blood would do, he's like, it could make it worse, it could do nothing, and he also doesn't want him to have a condition like Dr. Connors where he gets some weird side effect and Peter goes to Harry as Spider-Man and refuses to give him his blood. The Oscorp vice president frames Harry for covering up Max's incident and gets him removed as the CEO of Oscorp and ends up taking control himself which your, you know, your resident madman going crazy, turning into the goblin, decides to go release Max, who's now officially been calling himself Electro. Ay, ay, ay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. He he makes uh, a grand spectacle of himself to to get everything to go his way again. And they end up going back to Oscorp. Harry gives him this crazy new conductive suit that's really just like way too tight and looks a little weird and i don't know why they thought they needed that much cgi on jamie fox to make him a convincing villain but that happened i feel like they were kind of trying to go with a combination effect uh they wanted a more modern look with the suit but they didn't want to just go a pure energy being either and so they 
they kind of mixed the two, and unfortunately, that it just makes him look busy and not fully fleshed out. I feel like if they had just gone with a modern-looking suit, which we'll discuss in uh, No Way Home later, that worked out great. I would say, um, which I feel like they did it that way because they learned their lesson here. Way too much CGI, not nearly enough, just real-looking stuff. Yeah. Um, so, with this new electrifying buddy's help, they break back into the Oscorp building, and Electro kills Dr. Kafka. Because we love killing off our side characters for dramatic effect. I mean, basically, that's the only reason this character was introduced. Yeah. They were a named character, people recognized it from the Spider-Man mythos, and then they promptly were killed off. Harry finds the venom from the genetically altered spiders and forces someone to inject him with this venom, because that's that's the smart thing to do, right? But instead of fixing him, it accelerates his illness and turns him into this crazy-looking goblin guy, and man, they they really said hit him with the ugly brick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing that and going, hmm, okay. Um, that's, that's a choice. You I mean, you guys just couldn't have gone with the Ultimates? I mean, because that's basically what this was, was a, like an amalgamation of the original and uh, the Ultimates Goblin, which was a genetic accident. And they just kind of like mishmashed them together here. Yeah. So the emergency protocol in his suit restores his health. And meanwhile, Peter has discovered his father's secret lab in a subway station that's been abandoned because that's just like a normal thing that hangs out underneath New York. Yeah, I feel like the, uh, you know, the subway system of New York City, they have like a better system on keeping track of their abandoned subway stations. Just, I, I feel like that's a general idea here. You don't just take over a subway station and hide it off the map. Yeah, so he finds out the reason why his father had to run away, and it was because Norman wanted to make biogenetic weapons from his research, and so that's why he ran, and then subsequently why he was killed. He also finds out that Gwen was offered the Oxford Scholarship, and he swings to her via webs and writes "I love you" in giant webs on the on the bridge, and then kidnaps her off the bridge. Oh my god! Ugh, yeah, that's one way to do it. Yeah, and then he agrees that he's going to go to England with her. Oh yeah, because that's totally going to happen. So, anyway, Electro causes a massive power outage. <laughs> I'm just going to pivot real quick. And there's a really great CGI fight in the power grid. Don't really have a whole lot to talk about it. But Peter discovered how to magnetically charge his web shooters in order to overload Electro. Because he's basically a giant battery. Because that is how movie science works. Um, Actually, I don't even know if we can call it comic book science. That's just movie science, and we're just going to move right along. We're going to roll with it. And they think that the fight's over, but then, you guessed it, our second villain for the film makes his appearance, equipped with 
the glider and the suit and his face. Upon seeing that Gwen has been helping, he figures out that Spider-Man is his good buddy Peter Parker. Ugh. Can we can we have it? I I feel like the only one who didn't know he was Parker is freaking Electro at this point. Yeah. Well, and then I want to know what logic he has where he injected himself with the spider venom that gave Peter his powers, right? And it made him even crazier. So he should be saying, hey, buddy, thank you for refusing me that blood transfusion because, like, I did it to myself and now I'm, like, hit with the ugly brick. Uh, thanks. Yeah, but he's also insane. He's completely... Bonkers. Bonkers crazy. Yeah, so I suppose logic isn't part of the equation here. Um, unfortunately, he swears revenge on Peter and takes Gwen to the top of a huge clock tower. Peter manages to fight and subdue the Green Goblin, but he is too late to save his girlfriend Gwen as she falls through the clock tower. His web reaches out with little fingies splaying to reach for her, and she catch- and he catches her. But just a second too late, and she smacks that floor, like... It's ambiguous, the way they shot it. It looked like he caught her mere inches above the ground. So it's hard to tell if it was the sudden stop of his web line pulling, or because he caught her, her head snaps back and and breaks of its own volition, or because it crashed into the concrete below it's it's ambiguous to say to say the least i think yeah either way the sound of that snap was a little bit gut-wrenching and um his subsequent freak out is warranted for sure uh, he's crying and and upset and disappointed and, and just devastated because he was told to stay away from gwen but he couldn't, and she got involved, and she was hurt in the process, and ended up losing her life. So, after her funeral, he's so guilty and depressed that he ends up stopping his career as Spider-Man. Several months later, Harry is in Ravencroft, and is dealing with the after-effects of his transformation, and his associate, Gustav Fierce visits him, and they discuss forming a team, and we get this little equipment room viewing of what should have been a setup for the Sinister Six, and Sistovich dubs himself the Rhino and Rampages in his giant rhino suit, and Peter ends up, in that moment, taking the mantle of Spider-Man back up and confronts him. And that's where our film ends. Can we talk about the kid who's standing on the wrong side of that police line? Because that was the most trite, cringy ending I could ever think of, is having this prepubescent boy in a Spider-Man mask making a stand against the rhino, and that's like inspiration for Parker to get off his butt and go be Spider-Man again. Come. On. I wanted to strangle the writing team when I saw that. Yeah, I was a little heavy-handed, and yeah, I didn't like it either. And unfortunately, 
this film just suffers, I think, from a studio not really knowing where they were going with this story. They said, let's hit these specific notes. We want to do this storyline, but we're going to take some liberties with it. We're also going to jam two and like i'll say like two and a quarter villains because we got the little preview of the rhino and then the ending where the rhino's the final villain that he's facing before the credits roll but then where we have the green goblin and we also have electro and this whole kind of convoluted backstory and then they're setting up this thing but then of course he doesn't get his third movie yikes it's a setup movie and you know how i've talked about how I feel about setup movies and this one is quintessential setup movie. Mm-hmm. All it is there to do is to create another movie and it cannot stand on its own. Mm-hmm. There is nothing in this movie that could not be done in a different movie better. Mm-hmm. I agree with you for sure. It's heavy handed. It's a setup movie like you said. And unfortunately, we never get to see what it set up. So it's one of those movies sitting there floating out in space with nothing connecting it because this project was ultimately abandoned. And I feel bad for Andrew Garfield because he was not a bad Spider-Man. No, uh, and you're right on that because, you know, in all of them, I mean, they, even all of our cast of villains here, they brought such a uniqueness to their villains and their characters like they were i'm not gonna say they were fun to watch i guess but we really could have gotten a little bit more depth with all of them absolutely especially for a setup movie like come on but at the end of the day like they just they were all in the wrong place at the wrong time basically yeah because the movie rights were kind of skewed there were weird deals going on the time frame was not the greatest. It seemed like a lot of the studio and the production just didn't really want to be there. And that's so unfortunate because they had a good cast and they had a passionate Peter Parker Spider-Man and the ability to do something fantastic and ultimately squandered that and then abandoned the project and Andrew Garfield would not get another chance in the Spidey suit until very recently. And that's just a shame, because he, he was very good, but he wasn't given a chance. And also, you gotta remember that I believe this was within a couple of years of the acquisition by Disney for most of the Marvel, you know, parts and stuff. So, because of that, because of those talks happening behind the scenes, it's also one of the reasons that kind of squished the third Spider-Man and a lot of those ideas that they were going to maybe build up on, you can see that in Sony's other Spider-Man tangentially related products like Venom, where they're trying to set up a Spider-Man-less universe, basically. Uh, Which is, uh, to say, (laughs) silly would be the uh, kindest way to put that, but I digress. Well... At any rate, that's that's all I really have for this movie. I think we've got um, a little bit of history, because I know there's a couple storylines you're going to want to talk about for this one. So do you want to roll into our mid-break? Absolutely. All right, welcome to our mid-break. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone 
so far for sticking with us and everything and for being a part of our patreon which is a big shout out to penguin ninja at our superhero tier and if you're wanting to get in on that fun there is a link to our patreon in the episode description uh tiers four and five get you on the show at the end of the month we haven't yet determined what the end of the month topic will be Probably won't be nearly as heavy-handed as current Marvel news as our last one was, but that one felt necessary to do because we had a lot of things happening, and it was important for fans to talk about what was going on. Absolutely. Um, If you can't support us financially, you can always drop us a review on Apple or rating on Spotify. Any five-star reviews will get read out on this portion of the show. And we do have one this week, coming all the way from Dash Nash TRP in Australia. They rate five stars, and they say, great show. A great show about Marvel. Have you got the Marvel fact files? No, I don't. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak for Shanka if she's got one. Um, but it is on the list of encyclopedias that I need to pick up. The market is very saturated with encyclopedias for Marvel overall, though, so uh, it's on the list. I just haven't gotten there yet. I have an Avengers-specific one, but I don't have a full Marvel encyclopedia, so it might be something useful for me to add to the collection as well. And if you want to chat with us directly, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Insta, our Facebook and or the Robots Radio Discord, where we have a channel specifically for the show. Uh, link for that Discord will also be in the show description. And speaking of shows on the robots, uh, why don't you remind us about the Fight Space, Shenko? Absolutely. I also host a little show called The Fight Space, where I interview fighters, tell stories, and share the community surrounding the world of combat sports. I also recently collaborated with the Off The Mats podcast, so keep an eye out on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts for new episodes of Off The Mats. I had a really good time talking to Jake Dante all about martial arts and even about the MCU, so... Hop over, listen to that. I had a really good time. Where else can they find you, Psych? You can find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift podcast, tabletop RPG that uses the Fate system. We play Citadel security agents solving crimes on the Citadel, and I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo. It's been a lot of fun. Episodes drop monthly on the first Friday of the month. And that wraps us up for our mid-break. So let's take us out to talk about some comic book history. Okay, so first up, we have a whole host of cameo characters in this movie, uh, plus a rehash of a previous villain. Uh, We've got Felicia Hardy, Alistair Smythe, and as aforementioned, Dr. Ashley Kafka, they were all cameos. Uh, Felicia wasn't even named Felicia Hardy fully in the credits. She's just Felicia. It's just kind of assumed or understood that she was a Felicia Hardy. Since they weren't given a proper introduction really here, um, I'm going to wait until they get one in a later movie. That's assuming a lot uh, before we explore them more in depth. And of course, this Green Goblin, like I said, he's kind of this weird mix of uh, movie Green Goblins with the armored suit and everything and the 
ultimate line where he's a genetic experiment thing gone wrong. Because in that one, he becomes this winged giant goblin thing that can shoot fireballs from his hand. And he's got, you know, giant horns and uh, uh, a thick armored hide. I and mean, it's just crazy. So that mixed with other parts to create this one. And I, they just, because they didn't pick one, it just didn't work. Or at least I didn't feel like it worked. Yeah, he went he he went from Green Goblin to like Chucky meets the Gremlins very quickly. Yeah. So as for our two characters, I want to introduce here. We've got uh, the Russian here, Alexei Stastevich, aka the Rhino, uh, also known like as Alex, and we're gonna just go with it from there. He was introduced in The Amazing Spider-Man number 41 in October 1966 by Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. The original Rhino was an experiment to create a super strong thug, uh, which they were successful in doing by augmenting Alex's strength, speed, durability, uh, and other physical characteristics, and also by like adhering some sort of like super thick armor skin to him and it kind of got fashioned into this rhino outfit it wasn't a giant mechanical suit or anything this thing was a part of him and would be for a while uh after his defeat at the hands of spidey he was experimented on again using gamma radiation to further increase his strength um which put him on a direct collision course with our one and only the Hulk, where he would become a major thorn in both heroes' sides for years to come. That history also includes being the super strong thug on several iterations of the Sinister Six, which, you know, we mentioned this kind of here because this is what that movie was trying to set up, was the Sinister Six. Uh, very recently, he has kind of figured out he doesn't always like being the bad guy and that was explored in another comic book uh series not series but in another section of issues uh during the um or after the one more day event uh he and spidey kind of connected a little bit about grief and loss and trauma but anyway i digress right now he's on mayor fisk's because hey Wilson Fisk has to come back in at some point. Uh, he's on his uh, Thunderbolts team. That's where they've shifted that team over. Is now to become uh, supervillain thugs for the mayor of New York City. Because that's that's just how that works, I guess. Because we needed that. <laughs> yeah. And now our other villain. Maxwell Dillon, a.k.a. Electro. Introduced in The Amazing Spider-Man number 9 in February 1964 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Most of this is the same as what you get. He has a freak accident, although in this original he was a lineman slash electrical engineer. And so he was working on a power line when he was struck by lightning. And that changed him uh, into Electro. Now, I am fully of this belief that 
Max had like a brain chemistry alteration when this happened because up until that moment, he was just a working guy. He was trying to provide. Uh, he wasn't a criminal or anything. He was just a guy. And then he gets changed like this and he immediately goes into a, a life of crime. So I, I think something in him got broken in a way that he has never dealt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they portrayed this in the movie a little bit too, because in his uh, like his suite, the music that's made for him, you can kind of hear the whispers of almost like a multiple personalities or the like the devil on your shoulder saying, "He's your enemy. He shot at you. He's he's afraid of you. You, you should you should use your powers on him." And that I think was how they portrayed that, how they chose to portray that in this film and unfortunately the the musical score was the best part about this movie Mm, and very much indeed um electro would be one of the first iterations of the sinister six um under dr octopus and he's been kind of a legendary pain in the butt ever since he's one of the more recognizable villains in marvel history uh, he was instrumental in the creation of the new Avengers after the Avengers Disassembled comic. Uh, he created a prison break from the raft, letting loose untold number of villains at a time when several superheroes were visiting. Things happened. It got bad. It's a really good read, and it's what, when Spider-Man is invited to become an official Avenger. It's by uh, Bendis. Currently... Max has been resurrected after dying at the hands of superfan and new Electro, Francine Fry. I cannot make that up. I didn't make that up. But her name is Francine Fry, and she is Electro 2. She fried him. She did. They kissed. Uh, She was a clone. And, yeah, she had already been dead. She was a clone. But her sample was mixed with his from the saliva whatever and she basically absorbed him and his powers and it killed him now he's been resurrected or cloned or whatever and yeah spider-man guys if you if there's anything like anything you should know about spider-man it's genetics and clones those two words should just be synonymous to you at this point concerning spider-man all right so now the big one because i've got a very important comic book to discuss. It's called The Night Gwen Stacy Died, also known as The Grin Goblin's Last Stand. Um, actually, I think, and that's what it was actually marketed as, uh, but we all in the fandom know this one as The Night Gwen Stacy Died. This is uh, The Amazing Spider-Man issues number 121 and 122 by Jerry Conway, Gil Kane, John Romita, with editor by Roy Thomas. So, lots of things that are present in the movie happened. You've got Green Goblin. He's going crazy. He has remembered Peter Parker as Spider-Man, and he goes out of his way to make Spidey's life miserable again. So he targets Gwen Stacy. He takes her to the Brooklyn Bridge, tosses her off of it, and Spidey tries to, you know, flip down... A line and the sudden stop from her fall snaps her neck. Next issue has Spider-Man pursuing the Green Goblin 
and it has in it the iconic scene from uh, Maguire's Spider-Man at the end when uh, Parker leaps out of the way of the uh, incoming glider and, and, and it impales Goblin. That comes from this book, this line. Afterwards, Parker, who is very sad about the death of his girlfriend, is he takes comfort and is comforted by Mary Jane Watson, who was very close with Gwen, and so she's lost a dear friend. And so they they start comforting each other. And that's what I meant from last episode of what happens when a different character becomes more popular than the currently established one. Because that was one of the reasons why they decided to kill off Gwen Stacy. Uh, as I mentioned in my History of Comics episode, these two issues are kind of considered the the end of the Silver Age of Comics and what usher in the grittier, darker Bronze Age of Comics. Because the idea of killing off a uh, significant character like Gwen Stacy was simply unheard of, especially when you've got the comics code enforcing so much and trying to keep it light, almost. There's only so far you can go with certain stuff. And also, having the hero fail at at su on such a level is rarely heard of with, like, once the hero has been established. Most of the time, their failings come at their origins. Because... And because they failed, well, that can never happen again. And that's why they're the hero they are. So to have it done again is a lot of the reasons why this one's kind of considered a second origin to Spidey. And why her death is so important to his character. It is remarked that Stan Lee, once he read and read about the issues, uh, was very upset and tried to get the board to uh, go back on it, recant it, uh, retcon it, do something. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to put it, uh, he was not, he didn't have the controlling vote on that. Um, it's rumored or it's somewhat known that he had established Gwen Stacy after his own wife at the time of her creation. So, I, I can see why he was like, hey, no, wait, I didn't say we could do that. Except for the part where he actually had, he just forgot because apparently he was in a rush at the time. There's a lot of differing stories because these interviews were held decades later by now men in their 60s and 70s who may not have the best memory of how certain things went down or whatever. So, yeah. It's it's a little unclear as to how all this went down. And we may never know. Indeed. And yeah, I, that's kind of, that's it. If you ever have the opportunity to read these two issues, I wholeheartedly recommend you do it. Because um, they are such, they are so important to the Spider-Man mythos, to the Marvel mythos. This scene gets kind of like redone in in several different iterations of both Spider-Man and in other media, with you know certain characters playing the roles of Spidey, Goblin, and Gwen Stacy. Uh, yeah, 
I kind of wish this was in a better movie. Me too. It deserved to be in a better movie. It did. I, I think, I, I hope now with everything that's continuing to happen with the Spider-Man universe, there were talks that potentially Toby and potentially Andrew would get another run at Spidey. And I would honestly love to see it, especially Andrew Garfield, because he didn't even get a trilogy like the other two. And I want to see what they could potentially do with that storyline because they did leave his whole trilogy just unfinished because this was a setup movie and it's it's disappointing that I think some of the best quippy Spider-Man that we get to see exists within the worst set of films. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mentioned earlier that the soundtrack was a bright side to this. The the score was done primarily by Hans Zimmer who People might know from movies like The Dark Knight and Inception. So uh, big musical props on this one. I enjoyed the soundtrack here. But it, it's just kind of unfortunate that this is where this trilogy ends because due to those issues with the studios and the litigations and the legal standings for the contracts and the movie rights, uh, he got shuffled to the back burner and ultimately shafted because he deserved a trilogy. And this could have been a trilogy and it at least might have somewhat justified all the loose ends that this movie left hanging out that never get addressed. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part of me that's like, I would have liked to have seen a Sinister Six movie, but we've seen previously in both, in both this one and in Spider-Man 3 what happens when we have too many villains. But at the same time, we've all now seen a Spider-Man movie where you can have so many villains and it worked out because while it didn't work for McGuire or Garfield, it worked out in Holland's favor, which we will discuss uh, further down the line. Speaking of in the pipelines coming up, we've got a couple interviews and then uh, another patron chat coming at you uh, next week. We sit down with the legend himself in Seven Legend from the Mass Effect lore cast to discuss Gwen Stacy. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. Yeah, I certainly am looking forward to that. Um, with that, though, that's really, I think that's all we have for tonight, guys. Night, everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In Seven Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration, Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us, Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork, Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music, our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this, and you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And, to quote Stan the Man, Enough said.
Are you a fan of Elden Ring? Are you confused about the lore as pretty much everyone else? We've got you covered. Check out the Elden Archives, a lore podcast that helps to explain every little confusing detail about the lands between. Things like what exactly happened on the Night of the Black Knives, or what we really know about characters like Nicola. Just like the show you're listening to now, we're on the Robots Radio Network, so you know it'll be good. Wondering how to find the show? Easy. Either go to robotsradio.net or search Elden Archives on whatever podcatcher you're using right now. Bookmark the show for later, and we'll see you in the lands between. Again, that's The Elden Archives, a FromSoft Lorecast, available everywhere.